Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian, and hope that everybody had great holidays and a very happy new year. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Joining us today is my good friend, Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm, Capital Alpha Partners, to help us start off 2022, what to expect in the week ahead, and discuss anything else that's on his mind. Byron, Happy New Year. Hope you had great holidays, and thanks so much for joining us. Great to be back. Happy New Year, Vago, and I'm very envious of the snow you guys are having in Washington, D.C. today. Indeed, and a great way to start 2022, and, and I hope that we uh, have enough snow so that the other snow lovers out there get it get a chance to enjoy it, but safely and uh, doesn't doesn't end up uh, injuring or hurting anybody in the process. Um, before we get started, uh, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. And General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. I want to get to your defense scorecard as well as treasury outlays uh, in a minute, but I want to start with the same question I asked our business roundtable, Ron, Sash, and Richard yesterday about some headlines over the holidays that people may have missed or may not be thinking about and you'd like the audience to focus on. What are the key stories from your standpoint? Well, I think that the biggie is still Ukraine and Russia. And, you know, I put it, I put a report out that basically looked at that and really a couple of different scenarios and tried to place it in historic context. Um, you know, I think there's 40% probability that there could be a major conflict. And I defined in the report what I thought a major conflict could be over Ukraine. Uh, now that obviously implies that 60% that somehow this thing is resolved and in one way or another, and there's no major combat, but um, it, it is the looming geopolitical issue uh, for January and February. Uh, you know, there are a series of talks are going to take place, um, I believe, beginning January 9th. We did have a call between uh, President Biden and Putin uh, that really didn't seem to lead to any change other than just an agreement to continue to talk. But, you know, I, I think you have to put this in context. There aren't a lot of crises like this um, since World War II, where there was, this, you know, a major military buildup, some very sharp demands placed by one side with kind of a, a, an urgency to get those demands resolved and a threat of, of major use of conventional force. And it, it was a very different time period for the defense sector. But, you know, the one I talked about in the report was kind of the fall, call it, you know, September through <clears throat> early January uh, 1990 to 1991, after Iraq had invaded Kuwait, you know, there was a protracted military buildup, you know, a lot of demands for Iraq to vacate Kuwait. It didn't happen. There was a war, which I think surprised a lot of people, um, if I, I think about what happened during that time period. And and yet it was a war that that turned out in a lot of ways very differently than what was expected certainly some of the consensus thinking in October, November, that either it would be over very quickly or there would be massive casualties. And maybe that's the same way to start thinking about Ukraine and Russia, that uh, we really don't know what this conflict could look like if one happens. And there are inevitably going to be lessons learned from it. And, and some really major repercussions for Europe, for the United States, for China, uh, and the rest of the world. One of the issues we talked 
talked about on the program yesterday was uh, the Finnish president and prime minister, uh, the president uh, Sauli Ninisto, uh, had, you know, said that um, you know, Finland can join NATO if Finland decides uh, to do, do so, rebuking uh, Vladimir Putin. It's more powerful sometimes coming from the Finns. That's a reiteration of the standard uh, position that Finland has had for a long time, of course. But one of the things that he also invoked was sort of Henry Kissinger, uh, Kissinger's line that, look, taking force, the use of military force off the table, then allows the worst actors in the you know international system uh, to to take advantage of 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 that. Um, and one of the other topics we discussed was you know we're investing a lot of money in new technology uh, and how instability might be very good for defense spending, whether it comes from North Korea or Iran or anywhere else. And yet the the question is whether you want to use that force, right? So you may have the capability. Russia doesn't seem to be particularly bothered, right? We've taken military force off the off the table. We say there are going to be severe repercussions, but what we consider severe, Russia may consider less severe, right? How do we need to be thinking about the international order? Because time and again, we we seem to, as Western democracies, sort of overthink this sometimes. I mean, is is that sort yeah, of the I mean, source I, I of think, the risk here? Well, look, there's not there's just not a lot of appetite you know, for the United States or for NATO to send ground forces in or air forces or air defense units to defend Ukraine right now. You know, I think the rhetoric seems to be leaning more towards, <clears throat> we'll back you up, <clears throat> um, we'll make, we'll, we'll turn Ukraine into a porcupine or, a, a you know, something that's going to be very difficult that if Russia does move militarily for Russia to digest. <clears throat> and obviously the other part of this equation is going to be um, some very punishing sanctions and, and a decoupling, which I don't know how, how likely it will be, but an attempt to decouple uh, you know, Russian energy from Europe. Um, that's going to be a very tall task. And I think that's frankly Russian leverage right now. Um, so there's not, I mean, other, other than you know, an outright um, mission to aid, an expedition to aid Ukraine, and, and inevitably you talk about the potential to directly um, engage Russian forces if that's where this thing goes. There are a lot of other things that have been talked about, Vaga, that I just think, you know, it kind of gets back to the, um, the AUKUS agreement and, and how glacial um, some of these time horizons are to provide new military capability to, uh, to allies and friends. And um, I, I kept thinking during this crisis, I think it took the Russians basically six to seven months from a decision, from the time the decision was made in the Politburo to provide North Korea with an integrated air defense system to when they actually had one that was up and working uh, in Hanoi uh, during the Vietnam conflict. And I mean, you know, there's been this talk about, well, maybe we'll provide Patriot <clears throat> to Ukraine, but you know, the way these things seem to move, it's, it's glacial. And oh, by the way, you probably, as, as the Soviets did in North Korea, you'd probably have to have American or other NATO personnel operating uh, those air defense systems until, until the Ukrainians could come up to speed and operate it on their own. So for the time being, you know, I think you're really seeing things like the Estonian decision to send 122 millimeter howitzers uh, or, or field artillery pieces, sorry, to to, um, to Ukraine, because that's the kind of kit that they can they can use and digest. And javelins, stingers, um, switchblades, you know, they're interesting, but come on, against, against a combined arms offensive 
Um, you know, they're not going to, Michael Kaufman has pointed this out on numerous occasions. I agree with him wholeheartedly. They are not going to affect the calculus of Putin's decision on whether or not to use military force in Ukraine. So what has to change, right? I mean, uh, the public is willing to spend $770 billion uh, annually on defense, right? I mean, that's the amount for the National Defense Authorization Act that the president has signed into law now. A significant increase, $25 billion, more than the administration had initially uh, asked for. Uh, Unfortunately, the additional money did not go for more, as much for meaningful capabilities, rather, sadly, to protect too many uh, pre-existing uh, p- priorities, right? The, the public has a tendency of supporting spending if, if they know that it's helping the United States. If, if the United States, you know what I mean? And yeah. that goes for any nation. Could this end up, I mean, if Russia ends up looking at all of this and going ahead and expanding an invasion or doing something, not just there, but actually doing something somewhere else, right? I mean, increasingly there's a concern that there is a realization, I should say, not a concern that Moscow and Beijing are working in cahoots, uh, right? Um, you know, that this may be a distraction for something else they want to try to accomplish, perhaps. But even if it's this they want to accomplish, they can actually give lie to, wow, you guys are spending all this money and you're still impotent. I mean, can, can Putin manage to change the defense debate in a well, lot of I, countries I think, where think- citizens look at this and go, what are we spending this money for if we have no will to use it? You know, Vago, I, I think it goes back to um, the 90-91 analogy, and that is we, we really don't know how this will play out. I mean, I think the, the Ukrainians are going to be motivated um, to defend their country. I really don't think we know today how the Russian military will perform. They certainly have uh, a favorable correlation of, of uh, forces. Um uh, compared to the Ukrainians. And, you know, if they use air power and, and missile strikes to the degree that they could and that they did not do in 2014 to 2015, it could be a very different outcome um, as far as the campaign is concerned. Now, you know, where it gets interesting is when you start looking at the number of urban areas in Ukraine with more than a million people uh, from Kiev on down. And that's where, uh, you know, it, it becomes a real interesting problem for the Russians. Uh, if, if, again, they attempt to seize and occupy uh, parts of or all of, of Ukraine. And I think that's, we, we don't know. I mean, you, you could paint a scenario where, yeah, there's an initial shock that Russia uses force in Ukraine. Um, and then three to six weeks later, He's bogged down. Um, he's, he's running out of precision weapons. Uh, Ukrainians are holding up pretty well. Uh, Russia's taking far larger casualties. And this looks like a debacle. Um, that, uh, so I, th- I think, you know, the way you have to approach this is there could be the inflection point, which is, yeah, Russia uses conventional force at scale in Ukraine. And then a whole series of then what's that we're just all going to have to monitor at the same time. So I I don't think there's a single path here. Um, I would agree, you know, if Russia is successful in Ukraine, one thing you could see is a lot faster flow of equipment from the United States and Europe to Eastern Europe. So Finland getting those F-35s, you know, that could be put on steroids. Uh, Poland getting M1 tanks, that could be put on steroids. 
um, <clears throat> the Patriot air defense systems for Romania, Poland, and Sweden. Sweden just took delivery of, of one of their units. You know, that could be placed on steroids. So there could be some really interesting ramifications for U.S. and Western defense, particularly on the, the front line uh, states that, that border or are near bordering uh, Russia. And then, then you're right back to the other side of this is, well, you know, how does this play through to what could happen in Asia? I'm not convinced that these guys are, uh, that China and Russia are close, closely coordinating their moves, but each will be watching what happens. And um, I'm obviously, you know, if Russia strikes a very quick victory without any significant um follow through to help aid Ukraine or what's left of Ukraine. Um, I, I absolutely think that would weigh on the thinking in Asia about what could happen with China. Um, let me uh, broaden this, right? I mean, we're, we've been talking about Finland. Uh, I'm gonna broaden it in a moment, but j just to ask you, um, Saab has had very, very high hopes for the Gripen E. Yep. Um, and obviously, just like when the original version of the Gripen was developed, Finland was a market. The United States prevented Amram for, from going, uh, being used by the Gripen. And so the Finns decided to buy the F-18 to tip that competition. Um, this time, it was a little bit all over the map, although there were those who looked at this and said that Finland is likely going to go with an American aircraft and, and the F-35 would be a good aircraft for them, uh, given their shared border with uh, their Russian uh, friends. Are there any broader signaling and messaging you, you take from this? Because you also noted, right, um, that uh, uh, that this changes should change Saab standing, for example, uh, in the eyes of, of some in the investment community. But walk us through that. Uh, dynamic. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, personally, I thought of, of all the major competitions that that the Gripen was competing for, Finland was really theirs to lose. Uh, and it, it kind of got back to the cooperation between Finland and Sweden on a whole range of military matters. You know, you've got a neighbor that, that um, in, in the form of Sweden, you know, there was commonality and go on. But, um, but F-35, you know, after the Swiss win, I really thought, okay, you know, they've got a very good shot at this. And of course they, they won the competition. Um, Saab, group in general, I think, because it really is one of the pure play uh, companies, defense companies in Europe, you know, you forget that they've got a range of um, munitions, precision guided weapons, they've got radar. Uh, um, I'm, I don't see a whole lot more for Grip and E other than maybe some of the very smaller markets in Europe that they might uh, play in. But um, and, and then, of course, there's just a simple question about Sweden and its own defense. And, you know, would they need an accelerated uh, pull forward on Gripeny or maybe even a larger, potentially larger buy of that? So um, I think they're, they're still obviously very much in the game. Uh, you know, their role on Tempest and, and the role on T7, I think, is noteworthy as well, too. And you know, the stock didn't react that badly to the finish loss, which probably implied that it hadn't been highly discounted that they would win it in any event. So, um, but uh, I'll leave that to the, the guys who actually call which way the stocks are going to trade. You know, Vaga, the only other, the only other interesting geopolitical issue over the holiday period was Iran and JCPOA. Um, talks did resume December 27th 
in Vienna, uh, you know, there, there were some positive comments from, I believe, the Russian negotiator and the Iranian negotiator. But at the end, I don't think you heard much from the other participants. Um, Iran held major military exercises, including a hypothetical missile strike against a mock, it wasn't hypothetical, it was an actual missile strike against a mock-up of Demona, the Israeli nuclear facility. So there's still a lot of messaging going on here. And I thought the un- other interesting thing happened before Christmas was a leak, I guess, or a report in CNN that, oh, by the way, the Chinese are also cooperating with uh, the Saudis on building a domestic military uh, missile capability. So, you know, there's a lot going on there too. And I think it kind of plays maybe both these themes. It's been something I've felt for a while that, you know, the U.S. has been so focused on Indo-Pacific that these other contingencies with Russia, Ukraine, and what happens with Iran are really going to be shaping factors in 2022. And uh, I just think, um, you know, it's been myopic to think that we could just turn our focus to Indo-Pacific and that's that's where everything is going to happen. Uh, the rest of the world is not standing still. Uh, I, I agree with you, right? I mean, at, at a time when we're saying China, 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 um, right, we're going to have to deal with Russia, 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 Iran, 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 North Korea, North Korea, North Korea, ISIS, 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 and, and uh, whatever else uh, we, we've got to deal with. Uh, on the Iranian messaging, I, you know, don't don't let your rhetoric get ahead of your capabilities. Yeah. Right. Israel has certain capabilities that Iran does not. Right. Let's just leave it at that. Uh, and with in the case of the Saudis, right, that's nothing new uh, because I think Saudi Arabia has a collection of uh, older uh, Chinese uh, ballistic. Yeah, missiles, yeah, they go back to the uh, 19. Well. Absolutely. Um, and and it's not new, but it, again, you're just kind of looking for timing of you know why did that show up now? You know, um, that, that's all. So it was just interesting. It was not new news for people, I think, who understood that, but um, the timing of it is, is always intriguing, particularly during during a period when, in theory, it should be a slow news period. Well, and uh, right, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, I, I think the weapons they have are, are nuclear capable, let's just put it that way, right, yeah. in their earlier uh, guise. Let's uh, go to the defense uh, scorecard, uh, your treasury uh, outlays outlook and any other major issues we need to be uh, thinking about with your scorecard. What did it say? Um, Well, look, you know, part of it was just the geopolitical issues we just discussed. I don't think there's going to be a lot of news on defense um, in January. I mean, we should get the pass back from OMB and, and, you know, kind of how inflation is going to be dealt with in the FY23 budget. Um, build back better is going to, you know, lump along here until we get to, uh, you know, some kind of resolution on that and, and an appropriations bill. I mean, as much as it's, it's nice that the president signed the Defense Authorization Act uh, into law for FY22, we still don't have appropriations. We're working on our continuing resolution. Um, you know, it's the verge of earnings season yet again. Uh, I, I think it's going to be kind of an interesting period because on one hand, you're going to have companies talking about uh, <clears throat> more detail on their 2022 expectations. And, you know, with the latest outbreak of Omicron and, and uh, you know, pandemic impacts, supply chain disruptions, which are still a factor, you know, you might see some... some um, 
uh, a little ragged from an earning standpoint and maybe from an expectation standpoint. But I, I personally think, you know, people ought to keep their eye on these geopolitical issues and not necessarily on, oh, well, they missed earnings by a nickel because of COVID impact. I mean, that's that's a very short-sighted view on something that I think hopefully we're seeing a peak and, and we are going to be in a better place later this year. And a lot of these supply chain issues um, and, and employment, uh, the employee issues will kind of work their way through the year as it progresses. Uh, we've got a couple of minutes left and I want to get your uh, take on any other issues uh, that you would add uh, to uh, that folks should be paying attention to for 2022, uh, both good and potential bad surprises. You know, you joined us for our last episode of the year, our Festivus uh, program. Uh, Todd Harrison joined us as well, where he talked about bad ideas of the year for folks who haven't caught that. It was a great uh, episode. Uh, but you also talked, uh, you know, a little bit about what your big issues for 22 are. But now that you've had the holidays to sort of reflect a little bit more, anything else uh, that that you'd add and and put into you know, potential, uh, right, um, you know, black swan or, or gray rhino or negative surprise, positive surprise that you might add to the 2022 list? Well, I, I just reiterate, you know, we're coming up to the anniversary of January 6th. And I think, you know, how that plays through uh, the midterm elections is going to be an important issue. I think, you know, the, the questions about, you know, will President Biden run again in 2024? I think he will. Um, and then, of course, you know, this whole raft of investigations is going on around uh, former President Trump. I think it's going to be interesting to see how those play out and whether they whether there's another Republican who appears that he's capable of challenging uh, Trump's dominance of the Republican Party. I think those are going to be interesting issues to watch from a domestic standpoint in 2022. From an international standpoint, um, North Korea, you know, has been pretty quiet. Um, I suppose there's always a potential that they could pop up again and, and, uh, and, and raise some concerns. I still think, you know, the situation in Afghanistan looks very dire. Um, and from a, you know, just mass starvation and, and that has some ramifications uh, for the region and frankly, you know, global stability, depending on where all these people go or what happens. So um, I, I haven't, really, you know, Ethiopia was another one I've written a little bit about just because it is the second most populous country in Africa and same thing, civil war, you know, how does that play through um, domestic defense and, and kind of what's happening in the defense industry? You know, what is, what is the um, FTC rule on the Lockheed Martin Aerojet Rocketdyne deal? And is that a signal that's Sent. I don't think that'll be particularly impactful one way or another. I know Mantech announced a small defense acquisition today. So you'll continue to see kind of <clears throat> portfolio shaping. But I do think, Vago, you know, it's just this much bigger question about um, where are we in, in understanding, assessing these threats and, and what's really going to change to get in front of this. And, um, you know, the NDA has some, uh, as always, some interesting provisions on budgeting. But again, I, I, I just think we're moving at a glacial scale and, and uh, you know, we need to be moving uh, maybe, maybe a little bit faster, like at the speed of a snowball. <laughs> That's a great way to end the program. Uh, Byron, thanks so very much for joining us. It's always a pleasure. Happy New Year again, uh, and look forward to getting uh, back to regular order here. Uh, thanks so much again. Thank you, Vago.
And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.